and they think they even knew I was going to start Leviticus. <laughs> That's pretty cool. <laughs> I told Gina today, I was chatting with her in between some study breaks, and I said, I've always wanted to get through the Pentateuch, first five books of the law, before I die. To which he said, you're going to die when you get done with this? <laughs> you, you missed it, huh? <laughs> so, but that's a loving wife. Um, I am thrilled to teach through the Pentateuch. I do believe that you can see Christ all through the Old Testament. And I believe these books of the law, now with unveiled faces, we see them clearly now. Really fun to study. And uh, I hope you'll be encouraged, and I hope you actually come back after the introduction tonight. Um, how many how many started to read through their Bible one time and got to Leviticus and quit? Let's be honest, come on. Uh, it's a tough one. I'm going to renew your courage through this, uh, to see it and read it with different eyes, new covenant eyes, um, as you learn to love the Word of God. So let me pray, and then we'll get started today. Father, thank you for a chance just to gather on a rainy evening, Lord, and showers passing through. Um, and yet here we are. Many sat and had meals together and fellowshiped and spoke of your kindness in our lives and even trials that we are going through and shared them with our brothers and sisters. And then after a physical meal, we've now come together to partake in a spiritual meal. We've lifted our voices up to you in songs of praise, songs that are supported by the scriptures and full of truth, Lord. We've encouraged each other. We've stimulated one another as we heard each other sing. This is all blessings to you, God, all because of what you've done for us through your Son. And now we sit to partake in the meal of the Word, Lord. We're truly blessed people. Lord, fill us up. Cause us to be full, and, and even more than that, give us a, even a greater hunger for the next meal tomorrow morning or the next moment we open our Bibles and read your word. Lord, we pray that you would continue to cause great hunger for the word in this church, hunger to share the word to a starving world. Lord, give us passion for your truth, passion for the lost, passion for each other, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to just talk about four major thoughts in a way of an introduction to Leviticus. Um, Leviticus is not uh, just a, a book you probably think I'll wake up this morning and read through it. Um, but I, I want to encourage you just to do four thoughts tonight to kind of refocus uh, you on it. And, and again, my goal tonight is to convince you that the book of Leviticus is worth reading and verse study, verse, uh, worth studying and worth doing that. So, number one, the Old Testament was the Bible of the first century church that was built on Christ. The Old Testament was the Bible of the first century church. They didn't have all that we have. This is what they preached Christ from. So right there, that should give you a clue that this is worth looking at, right? Now, there, what's fascinating is you open this first letter, this first book here, the, excuse me, the third book of the Pentateuch in this first chapter here, that you soon begin to realize that there's no other book in the entire Bible, I want you to hear this, in which the Holy Spirit has given us by inspiration that has more direct words from God than Leviticus. Did you know that? Look at the first verse. Then the Lord called to Moses 
and spoke to him from the tent of meetings, saying, and it is a quote almost the rest of the way. It's God speaking. Many of uh, the Pentateuch, the books of the Pentateuch, are narratives. And so we have the author Moses, Moses often telling us, filling in the gaps, telling us the narrative, the story that's going on. In Leviticus, it's predominantly God talking. So right there, right there when you think about that, that God is the direct speaker on every page, that alone should be a cause for us to say, wait a minute, I better reevaluate my view of Leviticus. Okay? And that's what I want to do tonight, is help you reevaluate, my mouth is working today, your, the view of uh, Leviticus. I hope it perks your interest and attention here. Well, it's called Leviticus, Leviticus because um, it is where the institution of the Levitical tribe is now given the authority and the role to be priests before God, mediators for the nation, and to come into his presence and offer sacrifices. The actual word is come from the Pentateuch in the Greek translation of it. They are the ones that came up with the phrase, why we call it today Leviticus. The Jewish Talma calls it uh, Leviticus. They, they, what they call Leviticus is the law of the priest. And so that's how they refer to it. But the book carries in itself the seal of divine origin. And we say, so what do you mean by that? Well, when the writers, when the, when the men came along, the, um, the coalitions and councils came along in the early centuries of the church to to recognize, and that's a good word, what God had canonized, what books were truly inspired and what weren't. They, they looked at the books to see if there was a seal of divine origin to them. Did they come from God or did they come from man? And there's no doubt when you study Leviticus that you realize the divine origin is from God. It internally proves itself that the statement after statement is from God and it cannot be rejected. Now, Every chapter presents views of doctrine and practice. You may not have thought of Leviticus that way. But, but for the Old Testament saints, what God was giving them was doctrine and practice in this Old Covenant. And all of it, all of it was a prefigurement. It was pointing towards the New Covenant, towards the fulfillment in Christ. And we'll see that as we go through it. Now this is why we acknowledge that Leviticus bears the mark of a divine mind of God because it begins with him and ends with him. And he wants the nation to know the doctrine and practice of being in relationship with him. Now truly the gospel of the grace of God in, in remnant form is found throughout Leviticus. You say, really? The gospel's there. Remember, we, God, Jesus calls, Mark chapter 1 said that the gospel was God's gospel. He calls it the gospel of God. So so we begin to realize that everything that's written there is pointing to something greater, something in a greater fulfillment. And you go, well, Scott, how do you know that? Well, Luke 24. You remember, Jesus on the Emmaus Road, he's walking with a couple of disciples. They're confounded that Jesus does not know what's going on with the events of the day, but he's playing them a little bit. He's entreating them of what's going on and eventually he breaks into conversation with them in verse 25 and he says oh foolish man slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken and he went on to say what is not was it not necessary for the christ to suffer these things and enter into his glory and then beginning with moses and all of the prophets 
he explained to them the things concerning himself and all of the scriptures. With Moses, that means he took those two men through the book of Leviticus on that road to prove that he was the fulfillment of all of those sacrifices. That alone should cause us to want to look at the book of Leviticus. So let me say this. If you're a sinner, I think that got us all. The book of Leviticus is for you. Because in the book of Leviticus, it reminds us that there is a redemption for sin. Albeit, under the old covenant, it was something that had to be repeated over and over and over, and particularly the Day of Atonement, yearly done. But overall, when you look at the book of Leviticus, it reminds us there is redemption for sin. There was a way to deal with sin. Now, the greater way was coming, the more perfect way, the, the final way was coming. But I find hope in that. I read Leviticus now and I go, somebody went with their lamb and their sins were forgiven. That's pretty cool. Now, it held off. It was judgment was going to come eventually. That could not appease God forever. The final lamb that John the Baptist pointed out in John chapter 1, verse 29, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world was still coming. But that, those judgment on those lambs, on those pigeons, on those bulls, that blood, that sacrifice held off the wrath of God and forgave sins temporarily. And so when you study the book of, Revelation, excuse me, of Leviticus, you begin to realize that there is redemption for sin. And I think that's worth noting. The book will teach you that there is one coming who will deal with it once and for all. Now, when you think about Paul, when we follow his journey, his three missionary journeys, every time he lands at a town, where does he go? He goes to the synagogue, doesn't he? What do you think he was teaching? <laughs> well, turn to 1 Timothy. They look at Timothy like, him? <laughs> there is no first Timothy. He would take them to the book of the law. He would take them to the Old Testament to show them that Christ was the fulfillment of it. Can you imagine him standing up in the book of Leviticus and proving that the first seven chapters that are all about the different sacrifices to God were completely fulfilled in Christ, and he would walk through those sacrifices and say, that's Christ. He would walk through the next one and he'd say, that's Christ. And they either believed him or they tried to kill him. One of the two. This was his message. Sabbath after Sabbath. See, this is why there's at least 40 references to Leviticus in the New Testament. And there are 15 direct, direct quotes from Leviticus in the New Testament. So, the, the Spirit is inspiring the writer to write direct statements from this book. And so, I don't think we should skip it. Now... There's a tremendous amount of rituals and ceremonies in the book. And they're extremely detailed. But remember their types when you study this. They're types. And the type was designed and intended by God to bear a resemblance of something greater, some spiritual truth, something greater than what it was, right? Christ is greater than Moses. Christ is greater than the physical lambs that were offered. They're all types and they're all looking forward to something. Some of these truths look forward to the fulfillment in Christ's work when you study this, many of them. And some of the law points to the character of God. 
It shows him flawless and perfect and above man in every way. That keeps your right view of God versus how too many have de-elevated God and elevated themselves. The law teaches you of the perfection of God. However, we must remember that the likeness between these types that we'll see in here is never accidental. God has purposely shown excellencies here of these rituals, and they're chosen by God as what he calls as a foreshadowing of things to come. Now, remember that in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. He says this, For the law, Leviticus, For the law, since it has only a shadow of good things to come, and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. So, it's worth studying, it's worth understanding, even with our greater view that we have, because it is a shadow of something to come, but it is about something that's coming. And so, we study it to see Christ, and this is what the New Testament church had. So, in other words, you can, you can hear the word of God and, and realize it's not some accidents that the, that the Lord takes things like the bread and the wine, and when he's at the night before his death, breaks that bread and says, this is my body. He didn't, wasn't sitting there that night going, I wonder how I'm going to give him an illustration. Hmm. It was completely planned. He had authorized the instruction of this all the way back in the book of Leviticus. And so the night before his death, as he sits there at the table with his disciples... He breaks bread and the breaking of that and the sacrifice of that, the dipping of that, the giving of that, all went back to the law and who he was. And so there's no, there's no accident here. Wine represented his blood, didn't it? There is no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. There is no remission of it. And this book is bloody. We're going to see it. I'm going to take you through big chunks, so don't get too scared, all right? Because we could be there, I could die when we get done. <laughs> it is repetitious in a little bit. But, but the blood's all through this book, right? And in the blood is what? Life. And so there's no, you know, Jesus just didn't come up with that on his own at the last minute. Like, well, maybe I'll use this. This was a plan. This was all written down before, before history began. This was the way God would introduce and remind us of the sacrificial and substitutionary death of Christ. All seen in the book of Leviticus. Now, much of our worship and edification comes from tracing the promises of redemption through the Old Testament, and we find it in the fulfillment of Christ. We call this biblical theology. We see the promise of a God who will send his own son to crush the head of the serpent all the way back at the fall of man in chapter 3 of Genesis. And we watch that all the way through, but sometimes we get to some of the books of the law and we go, well, he must have skipped it here. No, no. It's right there. It's all being displayed in these types and ceremonies and rituals over and over and over and over and over and over so we don't miss it. It's good repetition, and this is what was taught to the early church. Second thought, the riches of our salvation glisten through the biblical theology of the Old Testament. We have a rich salvation, and it gets richer the more you study the Bible. And let me say this, if you're just a New Testament person who only studies the New Testament, 
I'm, I love the New Testament. I preach out of it all the time. But you're cutting yourself short. There is glistening, bright truth of the gospel, glorious things in the Old Testament. What would you do without Genesis 22? So far back, a son given for a sacrifice, a perfect male ram caught with a crown of thorns around its head to take the place of the son, right? Picture after picture after picture all the way through the Old Testament to show us the glistening, beautiful truth of the gospel. And so when you study the book of Leviticus, you might wonder why there's so much detail in the sacrificial system and instruction given to the Levites. Well, it's their doctrine. It's their practice. Right? The Old Testament, this was their doctrine. This is the way God said to come to me. And do this in faith that I will forgive your sins, that I will deliver you, and practice this doctrine. You know, we still practice doctrine, don't we? We have a doctrinal statement. It's been on our website. Go read it. It's very extensive. That's our doctrine, and we practice that doctrine. So the New Testament has taken the fulfillment of the Old Testament, and now that's our doctrine, all fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Now, you might even think that, as New Testament Christians, why should we care about all the details that have now been fulfilled by Christ in one single perfect act, right? Sometimes we think that. Well, I believe the book of Leviticus opens our minds to comprehend more of our depth of sin, first of all. When you study Leviticus and you see all the blood flow, it's flowing because of what? Sin. The wages of sin is death. And when you and I study the Old Testament, we realize the power and strength of sin. But we also realize the grace of God. And so we study this and see all the details and see all the unblemished animals and the, the way they were to be sacrificed, how they were to be handled, step by step points to a glorious nature of the Lord's sacrifice and substitutionary death for us. Each one, lamb after lamb, bull after bull, pigeon dove after pigeon dove, given in a proper way, will point towards the redemption of Jesus Christ. So in other words, here's what I think about Leviticus now, as I've been studying it for the last few weeks, getting ready for this. It's deepened my impression of the things that I already know. And it's okay, right? We should go deeper. We should see the ramifications. You should see the patience of God more when you study the Old Testament. When you come away from study, you go, man, God, you're so patient. I am undeserving of your long-suffering with me. What a beautiful reminder. But I think it goes beyond that. I believe in the kingdom of God, we will increase our understanding of the greatness of these events. I think when we get there, our mind will be free of worldly restraints. And because we see Christ as he is... When we're like him, like he is, the events that have taken place will even have a more powerful effect on us, right? I think you're going to say, John the Baptist, I loved your statement, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, but boy, I can't tell you how much I love him now. Because there he is. There's the Lamb. And just think about some of those events that we'll understand more. How about the tree of life? Let's take it on for example. What's that thing do? The tree of life is in the garden. We see it there. It's talked about. It's an essential spot. They sin. 
And what happens? Now they're roped off. They're guarded away from the tree of life. Do you know all of that? Do you understand all that? And then next time it shows up, it's in the New Jerusalem. And the nations are healed by its leaves and so forth. Okay. What's that look like? See, when we get to heaven, these things, so much of that Old Testament truth, all that legacy that was laid down for us, we'll marvel at those things. Can you imagine sitting down with Abraham and having a conversation about Genesis 22? Uh, Abraham, what was that like? I mean, was it here when you saw the ram, or was it here? <laughs> I mean, that's your son. I mean, think, think about the ramifications of understanding that with a pure mind, no selfishness in it, no sin restraining you. You're like Christ in this sinlessness that we now have, and you're there now unveiling all of the truth that God has laid down, and you're learning for the rest of eternity. See, I think it's fascinating, isn't it? And though through the New Testament we understand the law in such a way, in such a greater way, it is a foreshadowing of the gospel. But in heaven, I believe we will see aspects that we have never fully understood on this earth. And I think there's going to be aha moments all of eternity, right? How do you get to the end of the wisdom of God, right? Romans chapter 11. His wisdom is unfathomable. You think all of a sudden you're going to walk into heaven and you're going to have the same? No, we're going to continue to grow. We won't, be, we won't be a little Christ, as some religions teach. We'll be like him in the fact that we're sinless, but we will continue to grow. As a kid, and you have to help your children with this, and maybe yourself, because you kind of look at heaven and you go, okay, the start's going to be really cool, but what are we going to do for the rest of the time? Isn't that just a human way of thinking? Some people are snickering, yeah, because you thought that, right? Think about a mind unleashed from sin and an unfathomable God who cannot be plumbed in the knowledge and wisdom and glory and love of his person. And now I have a mind that can start to tap and learn and grow and understand his glory for all of eternity. See, heaven's looking better, isn't it? I think that's what's going to happen. William Tyndale, the great English reformer, lived only, lived only 42 years before he was martyred. He wrote in his prologue about Leviticus, the third book of Moses, this. He said, through sacrifices and ceremonies can be no ground or foundation to build on. That is, though we can prove nothing with them, yet... When we have once found out Christ and his mysteries, then we may borrow figures and say to it allegorically and similarities and examples to open Christ and the secrets of God hid in Christ. They lead a man to understand further into the pith and the marrow and the spiritual understanding of the things better than all of the words could ever imagine or describe. See, what he's saying is once we're saved, we look back. And we go, wow, <laughs> wow, what a glorious God. And that's what happened. Remember I talked about this with the leader of the synagogue on Sunday who becomes a leader in the church of Corinth. Here this man schooled in rabbinical schools since probably 12 years old. He becomes wise in Judaism and the Hebrew culture and, and the, the role of religion within the Hebrew culture. And, and all of a sudden at this day God plunges knowledge of Jesus Christ into him. And all that knowledge, all that Old Testament knowledge, all that law, all, all the ceremonies and rituals, rituals and all the prophecies, all of those 
clothes all of a sudden open up into his mind and he goes, oh, it was about Christ. And they immediately become extremely strong as a follower of the Lord. Now we have a little bit of this as a commentary found in the book of Hebrews, don't we? Hebrews is a great commentary when you want to read a book like Leviticus. And Hebrews not only gives us a new covenant understanding of the law, but it also provides an understanding that there were men and women who understood that God was talking about a Messiah, a Christ that was going to come and fulfill this. Now I'll get to Hebrews in a minute, but I want to go to Luke chapter 2 with me. Because I want to show you an example of those who understood the book of Hebrews in the first century. Look at Luke chapter 2 with me. Luke 2, 21. Now when eight days have passed, Joseph and Mary, circumcision of Jesus, before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus. So before the eighth day, they called him Jesus, as the angel told them to. And the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days of their purification, according to the law, which would have been 40 days, so not eight days did they go to the temple, they went after 40 days to the temple, were completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem, this is the main temple, to present him to the Lord. And as is written in the law, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord. A pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. This may declare the financial situation of the young couple. Verse 25. And there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout. Looking for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him. He's looking for the consolation, the, the victory of Israel. Now, he knows that has to be a person. He's not, he's not waiting for something to happen nationally. He's waiting for a person. Now, look what happens, verse 26. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord Christ. So he's so different than the rest of the the Jews at this time who were saying the Messiah is going to come and he's going to wipe out all our enemies and we're going to establish this. He was looking for the master. He was looking for Kyrios, the Lord, the Christ, the Messiah. He had been waiting for him. This tells us that they could interpret the law, they could interpret the Old Testament and know that God had promised, through the law, he promised a deliverer that would come. Now notice he wasn't alone. Oh, excuse me, verse 27. And he came in the spirit into the temple, and when his parents brought, him, brought in the child, Jesus, to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now, excuse me, now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen what? Salvation. Salvation. So, doubtlessly, think about this, doubtlessly, Simeon had, had frequented the, the, the temple many times. He was, a, he was a priest there. He was serving probably in a, 
unique role there at this particular time, divinely chosen by God. But he had studied the Old Testament law. And through his study, he understood there was a suffering servant that was going to come. He believed the book of Isaiah. And so he's longing for it. Now this led him to pray. And it led him to worship. He was dedicated to see this one who could truly save, who could put an end to sin. And eventually, eventually save the remnant of the nation. He needed a savior. And then if you notice still in the book, um, in verse 31 in chapter 2, it drops down and again he talks about the revelation of the Gentiles and all of that. But eventually you come to another person, this woman. This woman who was Anna. She too had been waiting for him and she sees him and she had done the same and she rejoices over Christ. She knew she had kept the law. She had saw that the law was leading to something greater than this temporary sacrificial system. There was one who would deliver her and her excitement was great. And the Bible says she shared it with everybody she could. Now, there's one more verse that I want to take you to. First Peter chapter 1. Because sometimes I think when we read the Old Testament, you might think, well, nobody really has a clue what the plan of God is. Do you think that? I mean, I've, I've thought that. I'm going, how are these guys going to know there's a Jesus coming? You know, How are they going to understand that? But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that many of them knew there was a Christ coming from the Old Testament, from the law particularly. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. This great description of salvation is given... It's received by faith, even for those who have never seen Christ, Peter has said. But then it says, as to the salvation in verse 10, you know this verse, don't you? The prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. So, even the writers of the scriptures, the prophets, Moses would be considered one of the prophets. They read their own stuff to, to try to consider, to try to inquire when the Christ was going to come. These were law-keeping, God-fearing, God-obeying people, men and women, who believed there was a Christ coming. Now, you say, well, Scott, are you sure about that? Well, I am. And, and I think there would have been a great difference if... If, like, say, Aaron's sons would have believed this. They would actually believe that the sacrificial system was of God. And it was set there to give you, give you a foreshadowing of something to come. Something to be joyful about. Something to live for. That your sins were going to be permanently removed. If they would have believed that, they would have acted different. I think Samuel's sons, Eli's sons, many sons we see of the priesthood fell into gross immorality and sin and were killed often because they did not understand the goal of the law. The goal of the law was pointing to something so much greater than a temporary sacrificial system. But listen, we're given such a great blessing, aren't we? See, we see the types. We look at a book like Leviticus and we see the types and, and all these foreshadowings and each of the foreshadowings and the pictures. And we understand it was pointing to something greater, a redeemer named Jesus Christ, and because of our new covenant understanding, every sacrifice, every vessel in the, sanct in the sanctuary, every offering, um, it becomes rich food when you study it. Oh, that's representing Christ. That's pointing forward. 
You say, well, okay, Scott, we get that, but what about the patriarchs? Look at Hebrews chapter 11. Look, these people would have lived in Leviticus. They would have been in Leviticus every day because they needed to know how to get to God, how to come to him, how to handle sacrifices, how to understand free will gifts and how to bring that, how to come into his presence. They would have spent every day, every time they studied, they would have certainly looked at the book of Leviticus of how God wanted them to approach him. Look at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32 through 35. Here we have Moses writing about his, um, the Hebrew writer writing about his experience and what he thought. Hebrews 11, verse 26. And this is before he even gets to the burning bush, um, but this is looking back. He said that Moses, um, rather than, verse 25, uh, rather to endure the ill treatment with his people of God than enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, listen to this, consider the reproach of Christ greater than the riches the riches and the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking to the reward. He's looking forward to something. And so all those who understood the path and the depth of sin, where it would take them, in comparison to the holy God, they understood that the law had to be more than just this constant sacrificial system. All of those who had faith in God, all of those who really worshiped God, knew there had to be an end to this. It was going to bring something about. And men like Moses did. Look at verse 32 through 35. And what more should I say? For time will fail me if I tell you of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weaknesses were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, women received back their dead by resurrection, and others were tortured, not accepting their release, so that they might obtain a better resurrection. See, they, they knew there was, a, there was a promise that was ahead. The law had taught them there's something greater coming. Drop back to verse 17 just to pick up Abraham's view of all this. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promise was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, In Isaac your descendant shall be called. And he considered that God was able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received back as a type. They had faith that this law that God had laid down for them was leading to something greater. Back up just a little further, go to verse 15. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out of, that they, had, that they, they would have an opportunity to return. But as it is, their desire, they desired a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he, was, for he has prepared a city for them. See, they understood there was something greater. Even when you say the Old Testament, yes, that promised land was something that was out there for how many years from Abraham to the final when they walk into the, to, the, to the promised land, all the way in the book of Joshua, did it take them, we know there was at least 41 years there before they got there. But God had promised that and they understood that through his law. We see Christ, don't we? Because of our New Testament position. Again, Tyndale writing on his introduction to 
the book of Leviticus says this. He says, there is a starlight of Christ in all of these ceremonies. And there is also truly the light of a broader day so that we cannot but believe that God had shown Moses the secrets of Christ in the very way he would die before it ever came about. So I'm not alone on this. I mean, Tyndale believed this, a great hero of the faith. He believed that God had, show, God had showed Moses the Christ. There's a greater one coming. Remain faithful. Andrew Bonar, another great Scottish preacher in the 1800s, said this. He said, all these events caused the writers of Scripture to see Christ through this medium of ceremony and so endured themselves to the tabernacle and to the, te the temple courts. It was their very home for their souls. Do you ever read the scriptures and you see where they, where they talk passionately about the temple? See, there has to be something more than just, well, we got to go there to kill something again. See, there was a hope there. There was a hope there. So I got thinking about it. I go, I know these are passages are out there. So I started searching through the Psalms because I think Psalms probably display it and I can find it quickly. I found it in Psalms 84. Verse 1 and 2 says this, For the choir director, so this is worship, a psalm of the sons of Korah, these were priests. Now listen to how they say, How lovely are your dwelling places, O Lord. Now does that sound like a place where there's blood being shed constantly and animal after animal is being sacrificed and sins are being atoned for for a year or so? And That doesn't sound like that. These people look, listen to them, How lovely is your dwelling place. Well, where was the dwelling place of God in the Old Testament? It was in the tabernacle. It was above the cherubims and the Ark of the Covenant. This is where he dwelled. They longed to be there. That goes on to say, O Lord of hosts, my soul longs, even yearns for the courts of the Lord. See, that's where worship took place. It took place out in the courts. They worshiped God for his greatness. It goes on to say, my heart and my flesh sing for joy to a living God. Boy, their sacrificial system, the giving that they did, the ones who have faith in God caused them to be worshipers. And you find them in the Hall of Faith, right? We read many of them. So we can be encouraged that there were believers in the Old Testament who were zealous for the law because they knew it led to the promises of God fulfilled in a Messiah. They believed that. Now there were many others, probably the majority, who just went through the ritual. Hebrews says they died because they had no faith. But there were plenty. There were plenty who said, he's going to rescue us. Third thought, the law cannot justify, but it will God guide people to the one who can. Paul's letter to the Galatians rightfully teaches um, the use of the law, doesn't it? He says it's like a schoolmaster or a tutor, right? But the master's to bring you to Christ. He says to the church in Galatia who's wrestling with, well, you know, we believe in this Jesus, but the, the Judaizers are really on us that we need to keep all this stuff. And they're wrestling with back and forth. And so through his letter, he's been working through systematically taking on the arguments that it's Christ alone or it's nothing. But then he gets to the law in verse 24 of chapter 3, and he says, therefore the law has become our tutor, our schoolmaster, to lead us to Christ. So that we may be justified by faith. And so the law leads you. It's why we still teach right and wrong. It's why we still teach through the Old Testament. It's like the Old Testament, like we've done on Wednesday nights, we teach through the commandments, the Ten Commandments. Because we, that brings you face to face, 
with the character of God, and when you come face to face with the character of God, you either going to beg him for salvation and mercy and grace, or you're going to die in your sins. One of the two. And so that's what the law does. You come up against the law and you go, man, I'm in trouble. I've broken all of these. And it leads you to the faith in Jesus Christ alone. I think it's remarkable to study. I've been following the three missionary journeys. I, you know, I get going on the second one because I was studying on Corinthians there. But I had to read them for, farther. I wanted to see what the third one was like, right? It's not like I haven't read this before, but you get caught up in it. And I get to chapter 21, and Paul is visiting James and the elders of Jerusalem. He's given this report of the salvation of the Gentiles once again. And what he does next... <laughs> can only be understood through a biblical theology. So he, he's given this report, this glowing report. They've all decided, look, let's not put the law on these Gentiles. Just tell them to stay away from strangled meat and, you know, keep away from immorality, walk with God, you know, and, and believe the gospel, right? That's basically what they're telling. So he leaves that scene with James and the elders. He turns around and he heads the very next day to a synagogue there in Jerusalem. Acts chapter 21, verse 26. Then Paul took the men he had with him the next day, purifying himself along with them, went into the temple, giving notice of the completion of the days of purification until the sacrifice was offered for each one of them. Now that's pretty astounding what he just did. He fully believes that there is absolutely no way, no way at all to God through the law, through the ceremonies, through all of that ritual, and yet, after he gives a report, he goes back to the synagogue and, and actually lives just like a Jew would live in that temple, but his view is completely different. Now, I have plenty of people have come to me, well, Pastor, shouldn't we be doing those things because Paul did them? Well, first of all, you're not Paul. <laughs> Let's make clear. You're, you're not of his heritage, and you are not what he was do, about what he was doing. Listen, the church is not fully established at this point. Now the church is. The canon is not complete. And listen, when you get into this stuff, you will be more of a stumbling block than others. So why does Paul do these things? Well, Paul's soul was fully enlightened about the rituals and, and the law, fully pointing him to the finished work of God. And this gave him opportunity to speak to the spectators, right? He went in there and he, he was going to be all things to all men. He was a Jew. That was his heritage. That's the way he was raised. So he goes through that time with them, goes through the purification, walks through that. And you know what he did? He preached Christ so much that he caused a riot. That's how he handled it. But he knew that that all looked forward. So he could walk into the synagogue, take the book of Leviticus and said, hey guys, this is about Jesus. I've been here, I've gone through your purification, I've done all the rituals that are in here, but let me tell you, that won't save you. You will not be justified that way. This points to Jesus. And he causes a riot. Many have gone to the mountain of God before. Many have been to the house of the Lord. And they've tried to pursue acceptance by the law. And each and every time they are denied they cannot be justified through the law. Paul wrote this in Romans. Now we know what the, whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth would be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Now listen to this. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. 
But Paul would not be a stumbling block to those, to those brethren, Jewish brethren. He would go through those rituals to show them this is all done in Christ. Oh, don't stumble over that stuff. It'll cause all kinds of problems in your life. Verse 21, he says, but now apart from the law. Isn't that incredible? The righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Fourth thought, and we'll close. The New Testament Christian can clearly see Christ in the Old Testament law. As we said in the book of Leviticus, and again, I want to remind you, I'll move through it fairly quickly. Uh, many of the rituals may appear to be meaningless to you because they're going to be repetitious. You're going to see particularly the first seven chapters just over and over and over and over the same sayings. But listen, studied in our new relationship with Jesus Christ, these rigid marble-like statues of ceremonies begin to turn into flesh and blood when the bright light of the gospel exposes the glory of Christ in them. I mean, when you look at it, it's like a statue of marble. It doesn't move, it's rigid. You shine the light of Christ on it and you go, that's a substitutionary death. That's somebody dying in place of somebody else. That's my Savior. See, that's the work of the Spirit. When Jews come to know the Lord today, they quickly see all of this and they say, Jesus was the fulfillment of all of that. I cannot get myself justified by these works. Think about this. Someday the remnant of the nation of Israel will receive the indwelling work of the Spirit of God and they'll be saved. And all the lifeless ceremonies will come alive in Christ to them. They'll look on the one whom they've pierced and their heart of stone will be removed and they'll, they'll get a heart of flesh and they'll worship Jesus. The ones right now that, that reject him completely, their hearts are hard. Just like in the, in the time of Jesus when he was on earth. But there'll be a time when they will look on him whom they pierced and they will have a heart that will believe now and will love the true Messiah. But that's exactly what happens to us. Oh, we try to be good people, right? Most people who get saved can find some kind of goodness in themselves. Even in the worst sins, they'll always some, find somebody worse. There's always a Hitler on the page somewhere. Oh, I'm not him. I didn't kill anybody. But see, when we come up against those ceremonies, you go, well, I'll just go to church, right? I, I've been pretty good. I give some money to some organizations. I put my kids in a Christian school. I just heard somebody say that about testimony. They were trying to share the testimony with somebody. Oh, I put my kids in a Christian school. Oh, that ought to get you to heaven. <laughs> right? No, no. I, I'm good. Still a heart of stone. See, when you're heart has changed, you look at these Old Testament passages and you go, that's Jesus, that's Jesus, that's Jesus, that's Jesus. And it goes right to the cross. It all just flows right through the Old Testament. You start to see the Old Testament getting smaller and everything's flowing towards the sun hanging on the cross on our behalf. So in our study in Leviticus, we're not going to treat every stick and stone as a picture of Christ. We're not going to read things into the text. But we're going to take the obvious likenesses of these types. And we're going to believe that Christ is the center of those revelations, right? We're going to see him in the lambs and the sacrifices. We're going to see the smoke that goes up that's pleasing to God and understand that he's pleased with right 
coming to him. Right, the right way of coming to him. And we're going to connect that with Jesus saying, I am the right way. I'm the only way. Now, the book of Leviticus will exhibit a clear understanding of sin and the sinner. I promise you, it'll show you you're a sinner in that book. But it'll show you the grace of God and a Savior. The greater part of Leviticus is about the law. But again, we'll see the law as a shadow of things to come. One more set of verses that I came across, because as you get in, as I'm looking at the book and breaking it up into sections to teach it, the last section gets into all the festivals. And they were, they were fun festivals, but they all had meanings to them, and they were often lost in the family gatherings and the sacrifices and all that went on. But they were held to pretty religiously. Paul had to deal with this with the, Corinth, with the, uh, the Colossian church. In Colossae, he wrote to in them in chapter 2, verse 16 through 17. In Colossians, he says, Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink. Now listen to this. In respect to festivals and the new moons and the Sabbath day. All of those things were problems, right? Don't drink this. Don't eat that. You better get the festival. And hey, it's a new moon. You need to do this. And then, pff, Sabbath. You Christians are worshiping on the wrong day. Then he says this. In 17, Colossians 2, 17. Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. The problem is with too many people, they get the substance wrong. <laughs> they get involved with the substance and say, oh, this is the way God wants me to come to him. Look, brothers and sisters, read the Old Testament and see Jesus. It's pointing towards him. It is the gospel of God from the beginning and it will unveil to you Jesus Christ as the Messiah. Now, New Covenant believers have such a great advantage. We have such a great advantage. Um, we see Jesus a little different. I was reading, trying to find people who actually wrote on Leviticus. It was very hard. There's nobody like, you know, yesterday wrote a book on Leviticus. You've got to go way back. So I found Robert Murray McShane's um, commentary on Leviticus. He was a Scottish preacher. Again, those Scots are really nailing it tonight. Um, he only lived to be 30, but they said he was brilliant. He was absolutely brilliant. He had a tremendous heart for Jews, made trips to Israel in the early 1800s, trying to win Jews to Christ. After he died, he had left so much written material that Andrew Bonar, who I've already referenced, edited his material, and J.C. Ryle says that he was a hero of his. Died at 30. Well, listen to what Robert Murray McShane says about our view as New Covenant Christians looking back at the law. I think this is fascinating. Suppose that one to whom you were a stranger was wrapped in a thick veil so that you could not see his features. Still, if alignments were pointed out to you through the folds, you could form some idea of the beauty in the form of a veiled one. But suppose that one whom you know one whom you love, whose features you had often studied face to face, were to be veiled in this way, how easily you could discern the features in the form of this beloved one. Just so the Jews looked upon the veiled Savior, whom they had never seen unveiled. We, under the New Testament, look up at an unveiled Savior. And going back to the Old Testament, we can see far better than the Jews could See the features, the form of Jesus, the beloved, under that veil. We see Isaac offered in Genesis 22, picture of Christ. We see the scapegoat in Leviticus 16, Christ. We see the shadow of the great rock in Isaiah 32, Christ. 
What exquisite pictures there are of Jesus in the Old Testament. And how much more plainly do we see the meaning than the believers of old? Look, there's no doubt we're on the better side of the cross. Because <laughs> we look at this. But too many, too many people, I've had actually people come to me and say, I don't even understand why we even have the Old Testament anymore. And that's sad, right? And I, I know they're saying Jesus is everything. He died. He's fulfilled all that. So you just want a smaller view of God. Is that what you want? Well, no, I didn't mean that. See, now you have an unveiled face. And you can see the glory of the Lord. Well, let me close with just a little bit of timeline because we're going to jump in this in the coming weeks. The nation of Israel was in Egypt for over 400 years. At least 250 of those were pure slavery. From the time of the Exodus to the completion of the tabernacle was exactly one year. God came and got them out. They crossed the Red Sea. They made their way to Sinai. And they were about, well, it was actually one year to the completion of the tabernacle. On the first day of the first month, that's how the Bible speaks of it. So Leviticus is established now after the law is given. The first, the full year is done. The law is given. And it takes about a month for Moses to teach and establish the law, the sacrifices, the priesthood, the day of atonement, the uh, description of uncleanness, um, the guidelines to how to practice holiness and behaviors of, in, uh, of life, the festivals, all of that is about a month. And the Bible says that they began this on the first day of the first month. So it's referring back to the, the religious holiday started when they came out of Egypt on the Passover. And then Numbers begins this way. Then the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness in Sinai in the Ten of Meetings. He said, on the first of the second month, in the second year after they'd come out of the land of Egypt, they started out for the Promised Land. So Leviticus is one month of instruction in the Old Testament. Two to four million people out in the desert instructing them how God wants them approach them, how they're to come to him, how he can bring uh, how he can give them redemption for their sins, albeit temporarily, redemption from their sin, and then how they are to conduct themselves in this world. One month to teach that entire nation that before they headed out. And a couple of things that I just want to encourage you, that as we study the character of God in the book of Leviticus, are you ready to come face to face with that? Because it, it, it really shines who God is. He is perfect and flawless. And are you ready to see the substitute who can hold off wrath? Because it's going to point toward Jesus over and over. There's a few other things in Leviticus that really struck me. God had a plan for a nation that was living in a pagan, polytheistic, godless world of how they could have government, how they could live among each other and not kill each other. And if one does kill somebody, how they deal with it. If somebody rapes, if somebody steals, he gives a perfect law of how that nation can actually exist in a pagan world. And I'll tell you, in our world right now, you're going to read, especially the latter chapters of Leviticus, and you go, yeah, we got problems here. You've got to remember how bad the world was. If a group wanted to raid another group and slaughter them, they just went and did it. Not in Israel. If your ox gets out and kills your neighbor, you're liable. See, there's got to be ways to live under the sun in, in this. And so God's giving this nation an example of how to live under the sun. 
how to live in this fallen world. He's kind to them. Look, when you get out in a world where they're defunding the police, how would you like to live there? Anybody want to move to Minneapolis or Seattle? Well, that'll be fun. Get bars and a big dog because that's where your life's going to be, just like the third world. But God was protecting them how to live with a neighbor, how, how to deal with infidelity, how, how to deal with immorality, how to deal with witchcraft, how to deal with the things that were in the world. He gave remedies to all of that so that they could live at peace. God was very kind to this nation. And yet, in the end, they said, we want to live like the pagans. We want, we want wives from them. And worse yet, we don't want you as a god. We want their god. And they died, one after another. And they did not enter into the land. So it's a great book. And I, 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 it's going to be challenging. I really ask you to pray for me as I tackle this because I want to make it concise enough to go through it. But I want us to see those great truths, all right? Okay. You gonna, you're everybody still awake? I know it's Leviticus. Day one. All right. Father, thank you for this time in this book. Lord, I pray that you would encourage us. You would strengthen myself as I study. I pray many in this church would get ahead of me and read and help me with it, Lord, and see things and, and share them with me, Lord, as they see the glory of Christ prefigured in this Old Testament book of law. Lord, we don't want to come away with more rituals and lists of things to try to gain some kind of righteousness. We know that is completely missing what you intend. But we do want to look at this and say, God, we are so grateful that we can dwell with you in full right position with you because our sins are forgiven through Jesus Christ. And we see how you had a pattern, how you set this up to point to him. And Lord, when we're done with Leviticus, we pray that we'd be greater worshipers of you and your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, give us, give us uh, eyes to see and ears to hear your word and the spirit to strengthen us as we go through this. In Jesus' name, amen.